Okay, well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we'll just spend a little bit of time. If, if you have questions, um, certainly feel free to ask, because we're going to talk about one of the most interesting things and sometimes the most controversial things. We're going to talk about tongues today um, and the day of Pentecost. So let me read the text for you, and then we'll jump into the, the message. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Now, first of all, let's start with this day of Pentecost. We mentioned it this morning. Uh, but this feast of Pentecost occurs 50 days uh, after Passover. And the Greek word for 50th is Pentecost. So that's where that word comes from. But as I mentioned this morning, this is the Feast of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. Now, uh, if you want more information about that, uh, we won't turn there for sake of time today, Uh, but in Leviticus 23 is where you have that information regarding uh, this Feast of Weeks. Uh, If you want to write it down, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 22. It's it's a harvest feast, meaning it's uh, celebratory, whereas Passover is a little bit somber because they're remembering um, the flight from Egypt and the death of the firstborn and all those things. This one, um, you, <laughs> you know it's going to be a good party because the way they celebrate this is they wave uh, bread in the air. <laughs> or they, they, I'm sorry, they, they wave, um, yeah, they wave two loaves of leavened bread. Um, so, you know, it's going to be a fun party when people just imagine it. Like, I ordered some pizzas and just imagining, you know, kids like, whoo, pizza. So it, it's meant to be something somewhat celebratory. Um, it's a short feast as far as feasts are concerned, but it's one of those feasts that, uh, one of the three feasts that all Jewish males, wherever they are, if they could come, they were to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. So if you remember, Jesus... Uh, had told them to wait in the city in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would come upon them. So something special was going to happen. Uh, 120 of them are waiting in this uh, room. And here it says that they're sitting there, meaning they were, you know, they didn't know when to expect, what to expect. So you get the idea that they didn't know this is going to happen. Now, What we're going to see here as far as the Holy Spirit's ministry is going to be different than what we see in the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, um, you would frequently have this phrase, you know, the Holy Spirit came upon so-and-so. Um, and you had this idea that when special people needed to do something special, the Holy Spirit would come upon them. But this is distinguished here because Jesus seems to imply something different when he says that they are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and also that they would be filled by the Holy Spirit. So, um, <clears throat> we have these two verbs, Then I want to take a second to talk about that. Two verbs related to the Holy Spirit. One is to fill up, and one is to be baptized by, or with. Now, they are used somewhat interchangeably. So we understand that what we just read in Acts 2 is that filling of the Holy Spirit. It's also the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What what that means is that there's a lot of ways to picture or imagine the Holy Spirit's work. You can use different word pictures, different imagery to describe the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, from baptism to filling. Uh, They're not contradictory. They're not exactly the same either, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit is very multifaceted, so uh, we have a lot of different verbs, or a few different verbs that are, that are often associated with the Holy Spirit. We're just going to focus on two, right? Being filled versus being baptized. So, when something is filled, when you're talking about um, using that kind of metaphor, right? Uh, <laughs> you're full of joy, okay? Or, uh, you know... <laughs> I can only think of bad examples of, you know, when someone's like, oh, you're full of something bad, you know, you're, you're, you're okay, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It just, what, what does that mean? Like, when you say you're full of something, right, good or bad, what does your mind go to, right? That's, that's the uh, topic or subject I want to communicate to you. Well, let's speak of this in a positive way. So, Charles Spurgeon was speaking of John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Spurgeon had a tremendous respect for John Bunyan, and um, his work, of course, Pilgrim's Progress, is, I think, second only to the Bible in terms of uh, its, um, its publishing um, throughout the world. So this is what he said, uh, Charles Spurgeon. He said, I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean, of someone being full of something, and you'll see in just a minute. Read anything of his, and you will see that it is almost like the reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. So, here Charles Spurgeon is saying, this man, John Bunyan, was so full of the word of God that if you were to prick him, instead of bleeding, you know, scripture would come out. That's kind of the imagery. So the idea of being filled with something, uh, it, it implies that it has, um, it, it has dominated who, uh, what comes out of you. Let's say it that way. That uh, if you're full of something, when you pour out of that container, that what you filled in, what's going to come out? If I pour Kool-Aid into a jug, what comes out 
is not water, it's Kool-Aid. So the idea is that we are a vessel for something. Yes, Nancy. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So um, we actually have a command in the New Testament in Ephesians 5.18 to not be filled with wine, but with the Holy Spirit. So we even have a command that we allow ourselves to be filled with something. But the importance of the imagery really is that if you are filled with something, that thing will come out of you, correct? That's the idea. If I'm filled with something, that is what's going to come out of me. I, you know, drink all, I poured out, or not drink, but I poured out. I drank all of this water. I filled it up with more water. Okay, what's going to come out is what I'm putting in there. Now, as a Christian, if we're being filled by the Holy Spirit, the idea is that what should come out of us is the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Not, not that the Holy Spirit is, is a water or liquid, but the acts of, the ministry of, the Holy Spirit should come forth from us. And so um, in this imagery of the Holy Spirit's ministry, the idea is all that we say and do as Christians is going to be Christ-like because the Holy Spirit is testifying to Christ everything we do. It also implies if we're always pouring ourselves out, then what do we need to also be? Is filled up. And so that's why in Ephesians 5, it will tell us to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't the Holy Spirit already dwell in you? Yes, it does. So you don't push the imagery too far. Like, could I pour the Holy Spirit out of myself so much that there's no Holy Spirit left in me? No, no, no. Don't, don't think of it like that. The Holy Spirit is always dwelling in you. But we're really what we're talking is about um, the works of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we should constantly be overflowing with that, pouring it out. But we should also be, as Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 talks about, filling ourselves up with the Holy Spirit. Now, it is notable that if you ask, well, how can we be filled by the Holy Spirit? Um, in the book of Acts, something special is happening. The Holy Spirit has never been poured out in this way. Like I said, in the Old Testament, it would come upon you, and it's almost like, um, like a uniform. So when a soldier goes out to fight, they got to put on a certain uniform, but when they are back, you know, home in their barracks, they take that off, they're not fighting anymore. So it's something like that, where you kind of put it on and off as the Lord gives you a, a purpose or a mission. But in the New Testament, the idea um, that's unique is that all believers always have the, the Holy Spirit within them, in which case being filled by the Holy Spirit is something different than just, oh, when I'm doing something Christianly, I got to put the Holy Spirit on, and when I come back home, I can you know, take it off. It's like when I get home and I take off you know, the, the suit and everything, I'm done being a pastor. No, it's not, it's not like that at all. Uh, instead, it's very much the idea that Holy Spirit's always in you, but you can also pour yourself out, pour yourself out, pour yourself out, and um, it's not, um, it, you start to run off of your own efforts, then uh, God's own power. And so when we see the command in Ephesians 5, um, the way that we are filled up is do not be filled with wine um, or get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we are to speak spiritual and sing spiritual things to one another. Colossians 3.16 says the same thing, that the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we get filled by the Holy Spirit by the word of God, which is also a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so one second. I think the pizza guy's trying to call me. So Victor, do you mind? Or Alan, do you mind taking that? All right. So, (laughs) no, you're going to have to call. You're going to have to call. I know, it's really important. Uh, (laughs) um, So, secondly, when we talk about baptism then, so being filled by the Spirit has to do with what's coming out of us. The things we do and say, uh, they are to be Christ-like, full of the Spirit. When you're being baptized, it's almost the opposite, right? So, the Spirit filling me up, I'm the vessel, and I'm being filled up, you know, head to toe, let's say, with the Spirit. If I'm being baptized, I'm the one that's being immersed in something else, right? And so um, here at ICC, and we think this is the correct understanding, we believe when we do baptism, in order to capture this idea um, of kind of a total swallowing up, we do full immersion at in our baptistry. You go all the way into the water until the water completely covers you up, and then you come out. And this is the way that we imagine the Holy Spirit uh, is to baptize us. It's, it's a complete covering, a complete washing over. You are being utterly overwhelmed with something else. And the idea is sort of like, and we'll see this in a second, that no one can see you anymore because whatever has swallowed you up has covered you, right? So you don't, I mean, I know you can see the person in the water, so to speak, but if it was um, a more like opaque substance, if, if, if we dunked them in the water, you wouldn't see them, right? So where do we see this kind of imagery? Colossians chapter three. I know you're itching to get to the tongues part, but just bear with me. <laughs> Colossians chapter three. <clears throat> Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The idea of hidden there is kind of like baptized. In other words, um, you have now been so consumed by Christ, you know, swallowed up by him, so to speak, that people, when they see you, they should see Christ. Now, again, with the feeling idea, you know, you would look at me, you see me, and, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm Yuri, but what comes out of me is what? The, the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is kind of like when, when God sees you, he doesn't see me. I've been swallowed up with Christ. So what does God see? God sees his son. God sees, let's say, even the Holy Spirit. Uh, look at Romans 6. This also kind of captures the same imagery. Romans chapter 6. Verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the idea of being baptized into his death is almost like um, 
you, when, when Jesus was sealed away in that tomb, it's like you were sealed in that tomb. Not you literally, but you could say your sins, your sinful self. There's a complete covering uh, of you or a unity of your identity with Christ. So another way to put this is uh, this imagery of being baptized by the Spirit has to do with a new identity that is submersed, covered up, swallowed up in Jesus. That the Holy Spirit is that which allows us to be, um, to be seen by God as righteous because we are swallowed up, totally covered in the righteousness of Christ. So there's an identity uh, issue, uh, a unity with Christ issue that is represented in baptism, right? So filling is, has to do with what kind of comes out of me, you know, here's Yuri, but he's, you know, you know like John Bunyan, if, um, if you prick his finger, Bible comes out, uh, hopefully for all of us as Christians. If you pricked our finger, you know, the Holy Spirit's work would come out of us. And, and really the fact of the matter is hopefully every moment, every day, the things we say and the things we do speak of Christ. is a ministry of the Holy Spirit, Right? The baptism part has to do with identity, that being baptized with the Holy Spirit is something that has uh, consumed us and, and, and totally engulfed us so that when people see us, they in a way should see Jesus. Uh, well, it's certainly because the Lord, when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of his son. It doesn't mean they were fooling him or anything like that. It's just um, as far as God is concerned, he sees us as dead to sin and alive in his son. All right. So I think oftentimes we kind of uh, sensationalize being filled by the Spirit and being baptized the Spirit, right? Because there are a lot of um, charismatic churches and things where they take those terms and those words like baptism of the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, and they turn into something sensational. That when you're filled with the Spirit, crazy things happen, miracles and, and healings or Gold dust comes out of the air conditioner. All kinds of bizarre things that I've heard from my friends, really. Like, you know, they're, they're at an event. The Holy Spirit fills the room, and there's gold glitter coming, coming into the room through the air conditioner, or gold feathers, angel feathers. Oftentimes, very bizarre things. But being filled by the Spirit, being baptized by the Spirit, is not that kind of imagery. It's a much harder kind of imagery to really embrace because... It's hard to live as a Christian every moment, every day of your life, right? It's hard to be identified with Jesus because oftentimes I don't do such a great job of representing Jesus to people. Um, That's really the essence of those two words. So I want to have that as a background because when we talk about now um, this this gift of of tongues, um, understand that it is about the mission of the gospel that can only be done with the Spirit's power. That's what we talked about today, but that was like the thesis this morning. But uh, when we talk about tongues, somehow they have to serve that purpose of the gospel mission that can only be empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think everything uh, is going to support that thesis. So, uh, you know the story here. Um, Again, I've colored this I have it in my mind, the, the coloring sheets that I've colored. You know, they're all sitting there in the room, and there's a little fire, you know, that goes over their head, right? Or the, and the, there's the, the wind uh, lines coming in through the window, right? Like, you can imagine in your head, if you've been at church for, any, uh, for a while or since you were a kid or if you have kids. Like, I can see it so clearly. 
Um, and some of that is okay, all right? Some of that is okay. But we want to make sure we don't have um, coloring page theology, all right? So uh, <laughs> don't, we don't, we're not going to make a huge deal about the fact that this wind comes in, except to say that the word for breath and for wind in Hebrew and in Greek, in Hebrew it's ruach, in uh, Greek it is um, pneuma, those are often the same words as the word for spirit. So actually this was true in a lot of those ancient Near Eastern cultures. The word for wind and the word for spirit were oftentimes the same word. And you only knew by context which word that you meant. So uh, here, kind of playing off of that, um, maybe to make it very obvious to the disciples what is happening, this great rushing wind, it's very emphatic, comes in from heaven into this room and uh, it produces... Two kinds of tongues, right? The Spirit rushing in on Pentecost to these believers, the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made multiple times in John 14, 15, 16, and the promise that he made just before his ascension, that's being fulfilled here, and it's fulfilled in the giving of two kinds of tongues. The first is the tongues of fire, and the second is that, that appear over their heads, and the second is speaking in foreign languages. In Greek, the word for the literal tongue is glossa, and the word for languages is also glossa. So it's one of those context things as well. Does it mean the literal organ in your mouth, or does it mean a spoken language? You can tell by the context, but the word is the same that you see uh, here in both occasions. We have some of that in the English Language, like when we speak of someone's mother tongue, we're talking about what is the language they grew up in or the language they spoke in their home. So let's speak first of this um, divided tongues of fire that appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Uh, First of all, just the imagery there, there's a little bit of uh, mystery as far as translating it. Is it that there was a fire that divided, right? So imagine like a, a flame, if it were to be uh, on, a, on a torch here, and it divided and little tongues of flames, and you can just imagine that a flame kind of looks like a little tongue, went on top of each believer, or that each believer had a fire over their head that looked like a divided or cloven tongue, Right, so it looked like it was divided in parts, like I don't know, like a, like a lizard or something. You know, it's got like two parts to it. So um, <laughs> it's not a huge difference either way. I personally kind of like the idea that there's like one flame that divided itself amongst each believer, right? Almost as if you know, the job of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to this in a second. In John 16, is to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, he's going to do that through believers. So we each have, let's say, some of this authority to speak the word of God. And to some, it's going to be judgment. To some, it's life. So I, I like the idea. It's not, very, it's not crystal clear, but I, I tend to like the idea that this fire kind of divided itself and each believer received this little, like, tongue of, of flame. And so, you know, like a little candle flame can look like a tongue, right? So like that, just a little, little tongue. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no fire extinguisher in that room either. <laughs> yeah, 
no, no, uh, no sprinklers in there. So I, I have a feeling that, that the strongest sprinklers would not have taken out that fire, though. <laughs> but good point. Um, now, what is the meaning of this fire? Uh, turn back. Uh, well, Acts 1.5. Actually, you don't have to turn back very far. Acts 1.5, Jesus is about to send, and he's referencing something he said in Matthew 3. So he has said this previously in his ministry, but we won't go back there um, since it's right here. Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, actually, no, we do need to go to Matthew 3. I'm sorry. Matthew 3 because there's a significant part there that is uh, missed in that quote. Matthew 3, 11. So this is John the Baptist speaking, right? John the Baptist speaking, Matthew 3, 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, that unquenchable fire is definitely a reference to hell. It's a reference to eternal judgment. It's a reference to the lake of fire. It's not, I don't believe that that statement by John is explicitly a uh, fulfilled or something in the little tongues of fire. But I do believe that the tongues of fire, which fire in the Bible almost universally speaks of judgment um, or purification, but like purification through judgment, uh, I, I, I think that the little tongues of fire are meant to represent or remind us of that future judgment of the lake of fire, that there is a baptism. Either you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit that has become a Christian, or you're going to be like baptized with, consumed by, your identity will be, you'll be united with fire in judgment. Uh, I do believe that there is a re- this is kind of referring to that that each believer, as now a minister of the Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit that judges the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, that we are being given authority to proclaim that there is a, there's a heaven, there's a hell. There's a God who judges, there's judgment coming for sinners. There is a way to be forgiven, but for those who are not, eternal condemnation awaits. So I do think that is all related, um, and that these fires are intended to communicate um, the Holy Spirit's mission and ministry and our mission and ministry to tell people about the wrath that is to come. So, um, yeah, let's, let's, let's just stay with that. Okay, so the baptism of the Spirit now. For believers, salvation. It's like water. We, we get that imagery in First Peter um, uh, as well, but we understand the sanctifying power of the Spirit as water. Um, but with every believer, you now have this mission of also communicating the judgment of God. Um, John chapter 16, uh, verse 7 through 10, if you want to see that passage about um, the Holy Spirit um, Convicting the sin, concern, uh, convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I'm a little bit tired, if you can't tell. It's been a long week. I might be sick too, so don't be too close. All right. Uh, I will say what's sort of interesting 
is that a reverse imagery is used in James 3.6. We won't camp on this long, but James 3.6 says that the tongue is a fire, right? Here, the fire is like a tongue, but in James 3.6, the tongue is a fire and it can cause all kinds of mayhem and mischief. So judgment almost always um, in mind when you speak of fire, but the association of tongues and fires I started thinking, well, maybe there's a connection there. Maybe that was just uh, imagery that was frequently used in the ancient Near East. Because if you ask me about Acts chapter 2, it seems really weird, right? That there's tongues of fire that rest over people's heads. I mean, of all the things the Holy Spirit could do to kind of inaugurate his ministry, why these little tongues of fire? Well, I think it also is intended to, it's, it's an intentional word picture by the use of the word glosa, but also a visual picture of the second use of tongue here, which is the speaking of these languages. In verses 5 through 11, I won't read it all again, uh, it's clear that they are speaking in other known human languages. It's miraculous in the sense that the disciples did not speak languages they knew already. So it's not that they just, um, they knew all these languages. No, the idea is clearly that the Holy Spirit, along with the tongues of fire over their head, also gave them the ability to speak in different tongues. Now there's something very interesting about this, all right? Most communities on earth, even now, are bilingual meaning people often speak two languages, almost any place on the face of the planet. There's often like a home language and a language of commerce. Nowadays, the language of commerce, almost universally English. So a lot of countries outside of America often learn some mother tongue and also English um, if they're going to do any kind of business in, uh, in the global economy. Uh, in fact, it's also not unusual for people to speak three languages, because oftentimes there's a, a language of the home um, that's very local, and then there's a language of like a greater community, and then a, the language of commerce. So it's not unusual to find people, or if they move to another country, right, where they already have their mother tongue and the language of commerce, but then they move to another country, and then they picked up another language there. So very common um, in, in Earth's history, in human history, even to speak three languages. Now, At this point, what was going on at the time of the Bible 2,000 years ago? uh, The Roman Empire had conquered the whole known world. What was the the language of the Roman Empire? It was Latin. Now, the Greek Empire just before the Romans was very prolific. And so uh, many, many people still spoke in Greek. And this kind of Greek was called koine Greek. Koine means common. Koinonia means uh, fellowship or having things in common. We're going to have dinner after. We call it koinonia because it's a time to share. Um, But it just means in common. So koine Greek was the Greek that was so common, everybody spoke it. So it was the language of the New Testament. That it was so prolific when it came time uh, for the the Bible itself to be written. The language of the New Testament is this koine Greek. So if you're Roman... You likely spoke Greek. You likely spoke Latin. Well, what about if you're a Jew? Well, a Jew, almost certainly, especially if you grew up in 
further away from Judea you were, like Jesus and a lot of the disciples, they grew up in Galilee. They considered that kind of like Gentile, Greek-ized or Hellenized Jews. They spoke Greek up there almost certainly. They also spoke Aramaic, which was the uh, common, let's say, Middle Eastern language of the day that had been around for many, many years. It was a very common Middle Eastern language, very similar to Hebrew. But they almost certainly spoke Greek, almost certainly spoke Aramaic, and uh, almost certainly also spoke Hebrew, a Jew. Especially if you were a Jew from Jerusalem or that area, they were likely at least trilingual. And if you were Matthew or tax collector that regularly did business with Rome, guess what? You might even speak Latin, right, and have four languages under your belt. There's a reason that Jesus, when he's crucified, had a sign over his head. It's written in three different languages. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Now, most people coming into Jerusalem that day spoke some kind of common language. In fact, when Peter is going to give them a sermon and just after these events, he probably gave the sermon either in Greek or Aramaic. I surmise Greek, actually, because you had a lot of Jews from all outside the region who maybe had kind of their, their Hebrew and Aramaic was a little rusty. They, you know, very uh, Hellenized or Greekized. And it is likely, I think, that he spoke that sermon in Greek. Now, why do I say that? Was there a need for all of these people to speak different languages if there's already a language that everyone could understand. You get it? Like, why was the need for people to hear in their own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, you know, Cyrene, all these things. Why bother with that when you could just speak Greek and pretty much everyone is going to understand what you're saying? In other words, this is very deliberate by the Holy Spirit. The gifting of tongues was very intentional exactly because it was in a way unnecessary to do this. There's no explicit need. The reason that the Holy Spirit does this is, again, to support this idea. The global mission of the gospel requires the Holy Spirit's empowerment. And to show that, the Holy Spirit gives us, I almost said a picture prophecy, but it's kind of an auditory prophecy, isn't it? That the birth of the church is the birth of a global church, one that will eventually comprise believers from all over the globe, speaking myriads of different languages. The gospel right now, how many languages is it spoken in and translated to? I mean, maybe Aaron knows the specific number. Not off the top of your head, maybe, but I, I mean, <laughs> a lot more than I thought, right? So, so here, yeah, you have, I don't know, listed, I, don't, I didn't count, but like 14 or 15 or something different languages, right? It's intended to be a picture of when 1,700 or more, thousands of languages will be used to speak of God and what he's done. The point is the gospel going out to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. The, the focus on tongues, which almost seems so bizarre to me, where you, know, you have churches that, some churches say you're not even a Christian unless you speak in tongues. 
Some churches, um, you know, believe in like a private tongue for prayer and all these things. But the point of tongues is to point out the Holy Spirit's mission of a global gospel proclamation. That's the point of tongues. They could have just spoken in Greek. And everyone would have heard the message. But the Holy Spirit is trying to paint a, an auditory picture for us, so to speak, that the gospel is to go out to the uttermost parts of the world. It's not just some provincial message intended for some small elite group of people or people who happen to grow up in a certain civilization. No, it is to go out to everyone. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 5. The end of all things. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and glossa and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and glossa, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out loud with a, vo- uh, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is just conjecture on my part. But in verse 10, do you think people are going to be saying that in English? Probably not. Is there going to be one universal language of heaven? I I don't think so. I think that if there's a specific point here that there's people from many languages, when this is said, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb, it's going to be said in this multiplied, myriad, beautiful sound of thousands of languages. Yeah, I got the numbers. It's 71 numbers. Okay. <laughs> In 7,000 languages, they're going to say, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful sound that will be when all of those languages merge to say one testimony. I think, I mean, I could be wrong. I just, I tend to think if you're going to point out that there are different languages, that they're, they're crying out with a loud voice, maybe not all in English or Greek, but in whatever language is in their hearts, these truths. Now, you know, we get a whole different side discussion. Well, how will we understand each other in heaven? If you're speaking one language, I'm speaking another, you know, some, you know, I think Bob used to joke, we're all going to be speaking Hebrew in heaven. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, Maybe there's a universal translator where we're just going to hear, you know, you're going to speak your language and I'm going to hear it in in the language. I don't know how that works out. But what is going on in Acts 2 is definitely pointing us to the end of the mission, which is people from every tribe, tongue, people, language, rejoicing around the throne. It's intended to remind us of the global mission of the gospel that can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. It's totally unnecessary. Paul or Peter could have definitely preached in, in Greek, and almost everybody would have totally understood. 
but the fact that just before that, everyone was going to hear in their own native language the mighty works of God. They knew it must be the Holy Spirit's purpose to capture people, bring to himself people from every part of the world, from every language and tribe and nation. I don't know that this still happens today. I mean, when, did, when you became a Christian, did you hear a sound of mighty rushing wind? You know, did a tongue of fire uh, appear over your head? Do you, should you expect then to speak in tongues? I, I, I think some of those churches are a little bit misguided in that because I don't think that, I don't know, you tell me, maybe it happened to you. When you, when you got saved, there was a mighty <laughs> rush of wind and you know, fire and you spoke in tongues. But if that didn't happen to you, don't feel bad. I don't know that this is supposed to be something uh, exactly normal experience for a Christian. And Right, right, right. So <clears throat> there, the problem is, um, whereas I think it's absolutely clear that we're talking about other spoken languages, I mean, that these are spoken human languages, most churches, for whatever reason, when they speak of speaking in tongues, they, they tend to mean um, what's called, tech, the technical term is ecstatic speech, which is usually gibberish, all right? Um, the joke in Korean circles, it's, and I grew up with this, sounds like shoulda bought a Honda, shoulda bought a Honda, shoulda bought a Honda, because you made a mistake about the kind of car you drove. It's, but it, it sort of sounds like that, okay? Uh, and I'm not, I, I'm not trying to mock what they're, what they're doing, um, but it's, it's gibberish, it's babble, okay? Uh, for one thing, it breaks Jesus' own commands about don't be like the Gentiles. When they pray, they speak in vain repetition, that's vain repetition. Um, I, 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 to, to answer your question, uh, I think what they try to do is put what they're saying in, into a different category. They kind of move the goalposts. That they might even agree that this is talking, of course, about spoken human languages. But what we're talking about is a, a private prayer language is what they say. And they get that out of 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about um, if... If I am able to speak in the tongues of angels but have not love, I am a resounding uh, gong, right, uh, and, and so on. And they take that to mean that there is such a thing as an angelic language. The problem with that is, is, is the whole passage there leading up to love is patient and kind is Paul is speaking in a hyperbole. He's not saying that this is true. He's just saying, if you take this extreme, that there's some secret, you know, angelic language that if you could speak, you know, you'd be having this special access to God or something, but you don't have love, it'd be meaningless. Um, the other examples, like if I throw myself into the fire, that's hyperbole, but have not love. There's nowhere where you would think that's a thing you should do, you know, like throw yourself in a fire, but have not love. Um, in the same way, it's not that you are to seek out and find whatever this angelic you know, language is. Um, it, 
I don't think it exists. It would be the only place where that's ever even kind of mentioned in the whole Bible, that there's some special language. What language does, do angels speak every time they show up in the Bible? Whatever language, apparently, that the people understand, whether it's you know, Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek or whatever. So there's no reason to think that there is one based on any kind of biblical evidence. So I, I, I have only studied a little bit um, say, the, the Pentecostal movement, um, I think it was a little bit misguided and perhaps um, there was, it started with a misunderstanding of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they want to make this sound normative uh, for the Christians. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there are scholars who try to kind of... Um, I, I, not off the top of my head, I don't, I don't know. Oh, well, I don't know, it, like people that I would know, D.A. Carson, yeah, I think Grudem also is, yeah, Wayne Grudem and D.A. Carson, those would be two scholars. We'd agree with the many things. So in terms of like, call them sometimes charismatics with seatbelts, you know, because there's some that are just, you know, they're out there, you know, you know handling snakes and, and all this stuff. Um, but charismatic with seatbelts, D.A. Carson, Wayne Grudem, um, and, and they typically take a more measured approach, and they would say something like, these are human languages that people can speak having not learned it. So they will take that definition and say that it's happening. Um, and I, you know, I always, heard, always hear like third-hand, fourth-hand accounts of missionaries go out into the middle of the jungle, and no one can speak that language, and then you know someone on their team or whatever can speak it. I, I've heard stories like that. Um, you know, I, I'm willing to hear those stories. Um, I don't. I wasn't there, so it's hard really to corroborate. Um, it definitely seems like. A, yes, 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 yes. Uh, but I would say, from a linguistic perspective, when you hear people speaking in tongues, and I don't know what everyone's experience is, there are some. Like the Shudabad Honda stuff is almost sounds clearly like chanting. When it's done in a, in, a, in a church, at least in my Korean church experience, everyone would be doing this. And it would sound like a great rush of, of words that would actually like ebb and then flow. Um, and if it wasn't so, I think, biblically misguided, it, it's, it sounds almost overwhelming to hear everyone pray, but it's all gibberish. I, I really can't that defies the word of God in two ways. I think, first of all, that they're not speaking a known language for sure. They're not claiming to. The second is, even when Paul gave instructions to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, about tongues, he said, if anyone's going to speak in tongues, at most two or three, and let an interpretation be made. In other words, if someone is going to come up and speak in a tongue, then someone who speaks that language and can interpret it, because the person speaking it doesn't know what, always know what they're, well, Maybe they do know what they're saying, but um, uh, the, the, the idea seems to be that the person may not even fully understand what they're speaking. So the, they need an interpreter to interpret it, but not like more than two or three or whatever. Um, so it, it really bothered me as I kind of looked at it that it was not the right way to do it either, that if everyone's speaking at once and there's no interpretation, so that, I think, is clearly unbiblical. I mean, I, I, at the time, I was too young to, to raise my hand and be like, hold on, everybody. I just read 1 Corinthians, and this doesn't seem to be right. I just wasn't in a position to do that. Um, but there are some kinds of 
the technical term is glossolia, where it sounds almost like a language. I've seen it on YouTube, and, and I don't mean to mock people again or, or try to make fun of them, but it sounds almost like they're speaking another language. It has the speech patterns of language, but it's not any known human language, and some might point to that and say evidence. To me, some of the problem with that is that there are other religions and, and um, other cultures that claim to do something very similar too. So it can be learned. And in fact, some, some Pentecostal churches, um, you know, they, they will teach you how to do it. Which in, in my opinion, well, if it's really a gift like this, you don't need to be like, say, taught to do it. it that seems a little bit peculiar. Again, I have friends that are Pentecostal. I love them. Um, I think they do love the Lord and things like that. And I've, I, I don't necessarily, you know, get on their case about it. But I, I, I just, I, I get the sense that can it at least look like and sound like what the Bible's saying about it, as opposed to the kind of ecstatic stuff. <clears throat> well, I think there's this, there's like a spiritual side, like you know, getting yourself in the right kind of place spiritually to do it which may not be good because it's like just con- conditioning yourself in a way to get into the right mental space to kind of let it go to do this. Um, but also like, yeah, the, the technical side, I suppose, of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's really hard to say. I mean, I had a friend of mine, and we're going to wrap up soon, so I won't get too sidetracked, but um, I had a friend who was with a, a pretty notable you know, Christian, someone I don't necessarily doubt their salvation or anything. And the guy essentially, as far as he could tell, uttered like, like the kind of shoot about a Honda stuff. Well, there's another guy who would interpret it, and it would be some kind of like prophecy about the person's life. And so in a way, they were trying to follow like a more biblical model, but it was this weird mix because it's, it was vain repetition. It wasn't like, a, you know the difference between what sounds like real, like a language, a human language, and just like gibberish. Um, and so he, he didn't know what to make of that because, like, well, I mean, I kind of respect this person. And there was someone there to interpret it, but no way to corroborate it or verify it. And that's why 1 Corinthians 14, if you read it, it's like Paul's kind of negative on the idea. Uh, of that. Uh, yeah, Mary, yeah. Well, that is another alternative, uh, for sure, especially when you talk about these cults and, you know, other, um, other religions engaging in it. I'd be very suspicious. Yeah, I, I think you're right, yeah. Brent, do you have a question? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy, yeah. I mean, tongues get stretched out to include Holy laughter, if you remember that, you know, the holy laughter thing. And even like, I, I don't, again, I'm not trying to like mock or make fun of people, but like holy clucking, like literally like chickens. Barking, yeah. And it just becomes this aberration, right? Like once you allow shit about a Honda, then like, like anything where like, you know, gibberish coming out of your mouth, it gets sanctified, including barking, clucking, all kinds of weird stuff. So, uh, again, you know, Grudem and, and Carson, you know, they got seatbelts on. They know, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. So they will give you maybe a more measured or scholarly kind of uh, take on it. I've got, I've got a... Satan does get a little bit outrageous. And people, unfortunately, in our sin are so desperate sometimes just to feel involved. You know, if everyone else is doing it, 
and these are people you think are godly people, you know, there's a lot of pressure or even self-pressure, let alone peer pressure to like, well, I want to be godly too. Or if everyone's doing it, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should do it. You know, for me, I was not, you know, I grew up with this stuff, but I didn't want to participate in it because I'm not a pray out loud in that way kind of guy. At least at the time, I was kind of shy. It seemed awkward to do it. So I can't say it was a real good spiritual reason that I didn't do it. But you can imagine it, kids, like, you know, they grow up with it, that if you're of a different kind of personality than me, you're going to just go whole, you know, hog into it and, and, uh, and, and being right along with it. And the parents would probably encourage it. So I, I think when we think about the goal of this is... The, gospel, the global gospel mission, which can only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, it, that'll, that'll rein you in. Like, how is the gospel being perpetuated if people cannot tell, according to verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. A cluck and a bark is not telling anyone about the mighty works of God. You know, vain repetition is not telling anyone about the mighty works of God. It, maybe the people doing it will say, no, no, I can't, I'm only doing this because of the mighty work of God. But that's not what it says that they are impressed by. They were not impressed. They were impressed that they're hearing their own language, but uh, what they were hearing was what was kind of amazing, which is these truths about what God is doing and what God will do. Um, and, and even still, some of them mocked, of course. You know, they're filled with new wine, and I, I love it. They were amazed and perplexed. Well, yeah, <laughs> sign me up. I'm, I'm amazed and perplexed all the time when I read the Bible. But the, so they're hearing the true things about God that would make you be like, this is kind of mind-blowing. I don't get it, all of it, but I, this is something interesting. And that's the setup, really. What was the point of all of that is to set up Peter's sermon where he's going to call them to repentance, right? He could have gone straight into that and they would have heard, they would have understood in Greek. But the point here in this setup is to set from the very birth of the church, the global gospel mission of the church that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the point of the double tongues. That is the point of initiating the church in this way. So, Wrapping it up. <laughs> Can I say yes, Mary. Yeah. It says that each one heard them. Yeah. It so, so that that would be one uh, one angle people look at it. Is it a miracle of speaking or a miracle of hearing? Is I think what you're saying. So is it that they were speaking in their own, that the disciples were speaking their own language, but each individual heard it in their own tongue? The only, um, the only argument, because I, I, you know, I kind of like that angle, the only, uh, the only thing that I would say there is that the Holy Spirit seemed to be filling or coming upon the disciples and not the hearers, let's say. So, you know, you would expect that the Holy Spirit is working in the ones that are in that room and filling, uh, filling it, but... Right, right. <clears throat> oh, that's fair enough, fair enough. Um, this does happen one more time, though. It is unusual, but it happens one more time in Acts 10, and that is because Acts 10 talks 
basically about Gentile Pentecost. So you have this happening with Jewish people in Acts 2, and then as the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, get included into the gospel task and mission, a very similar thing happens, Acts chapter 10. Uh, just, I'll just skip to when it happens. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, only thing I'll point out about this. When did the Holy Spirit come? Before or after they were water baptized? The Holy Spirit came before. Yeah. Right, Because as after the Holy Spirit came upon them, then G- Peter said, can we withhold water for them to be baptized? So, yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I'm sorry. Um, here in Acts 10. So for those who think you need to be baptized in order to be saved by water, well, this passage is an easy one to go to. It says, it calls, it says that the Holy Spirit fell on them who heard the word. So what is the really the condition of of salvation is hearing the word and responding to the word, not necessarily baptism. So that would be a passage that goes against what is called baptismal regeneration, the idea that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, the Holy Spirit can come upon you before you are baptized by water. That seems to suggest otherwise. But in any case, we see here the same thing happening, uh, even with the speaking in tongues and so on. So, Four points, all right, just to wrap it up and remind you where we've been, okay? Um, Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, it has to do with what's coming out of you. That the Holy Spirit's ministry, now as we have this global mission of preaching the gospel, uh, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that what we do, what we say, how we think, all the things coming out of this should be Holy Spirit-inspired, not like we're writing scripture, Holy Spirit inspired, but that all that we do and say, all that we want to see accomplished, they, they are motivated by, they are generated by, they come out by, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we are baptized into the Holy Spirit as well. Just the same time, sort of the same moment. We're not trying to make too hard of a distinction, but that has to do with our identity being in Christ, that the Holy Spirit kind of swallows us up and gives us a new identity. We're united with God by the Holy Spirit's power in uniting us to Jesus so that when the Lord sees us, he sees that Christ's righteousness, he sees our identity has been consumed. And we want that to continue to be true, uh, is for identities to be consumed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, third is the, the tongues of fire going over their head speaks of our participation in the Holy Spirit's ministry of convicting the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That God is accomplishing his mission through the people of God, through those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we have this task of, of, of bringing um, this message that God is going to hold all people into account. Just like Peter said, you nailed Jesus to a tree, but he offers forgiveness. If you believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins, you can be reconciled to God. So we have a message of fire, but also water. The water that cleanses and purifies from sin. Lest you have to be 
punished, judged by fire at the end of your life. Fourthly, the tongues that were spoken remind us of the global mission of the gospel, that we are, uh, the intention of God, even from the birth of the church, is that this word, that this Jesus, that this good news would be spread to the uttermost parts of the world, to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that that has not been done yet. 7,000 languages later, and we still got more to go. There are still people groups who have not heard. There are still folks who are languishing without uh, the Bible. And so that is part of our mission. That's why we're here, in, in a sense, to support and help that global mission. So let us not forget what the point is and why we're here. We're not just a social club. We're not just here to kind of, um, you know, <laughs> we're not Noah's Ark, where we just find the eight holy people, and then we just cloister up and just, you know, everyone else, you're, you're all in trouble. No, we are those who go out, all right? This is not Noah's Ark time. This is go out and bring the message of the gospel to others through our Holy Spirit-inspired lives. So let's not forget that. Okay, let me pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, I, 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 I feel very much, uh, Lord, uh, at, at times here, uh, inadequate to speak of these things, which I, I find so hard to be true in my own life, but I can forget the, the gospel mission even in my own life. I can forget the Holy Spirit's call and purpose in my own life. And I pray, Lord, by way of reminder, by way of our love for each other, that as we now are all aware of these things, we would love each other and hold each other to, uh, to these things, encourage each other in these ways, and uh, really to see, again, um, the Holy Spirit work in our lives in such a way that it draws people to your Son. So thank you, Lord, for this wonderful group of people. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, which unites us. I pray that you'd bless our time together, bless uh, the food and the fellowship we'll have in just a moment. And we pray that all of this would glorify your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you.